This is the MLW Radio Network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. Welcome to another episode of Overbooked. I am your host, Mike Freeland. Good to have you back with me again. As you know, we are reading the Sabu book. Uh, we are currently on chapter eight in the book, so if you're following along with us, on your Kindle, uh, go ahead and get yourself over to, I believe it is page 180 is where we're going to be starting. We're going to be hitting it back with chapter eight entitled Self-Medication. This section may seem odd at first, as you may read. I have always been pretty skeptical about paying someone for medication or for healing purposes anyhow. While avoiding hospitals at all costs was not necessarily a rule I learned to follow from the sheik. He often avoided them himself. The sheik never told me in so many words, Terry, you should never go to the hospital. However, looking back, how he rolled, I think I inherited his traits. My uncle hated hospitals. He stayed away from them to save time, to save money, and to save himself a lot of hassle. Somewhat of a long time ago, I started doing the same thing. I wasn't long before I put it into practice. I started using my own golden rule that you should always self-medicate at all costs. When my writer Kenny Casanova was careful in skirting around the issue about my own drug use for this book, he said something to the extent of, hey man, do you want to talk about some of the time, uh, you know, after parties? Like what you would do after shows, you know, after partying and all? You mean the drugs, I asked, cutting right to the point. Everybody knows that I'm a drug addict, so why not just put it in the book? So between both of myself and some other things, yes, I did some self-medication from injuries and recreational use. I've had my fair share, but where do I start? Just to give you a little bit of an idea of where my drug abuse came from, it all started soon after my match with Chris Benoit, where he broke my neck. Chris and I didn't like each other at all very much at all, period. We didn't hang out. We didn't travel together. We didn't really hate each other either in the beginning. In fact, I was the reason that Chris was even in ECW. And as I said before, he wanted more matches in America, and I vouched for him, and I said I would make it happen. So when he broke my neck, I knew that he did, and it was just an accident. He didn't at all want things like that to happen. As to how it happened, I just think it was kind of indifferent. I didn't really care to think about it all that much. I mean, yeah, it was a little bit stiff, but he was laying in snug, and so was I. That's the way he liked to work, so crisp. I think overall he figured I could take it. He was indifferent to the risk in making the wrestling look really good. That's really the definition of what you're to do. So, after it really happened, I lost feeling in my hands. Regardless of my hatred for hospitals, they rushed me to the hospital that night and put me under. Chris Benoit came and hung out with me in my hospital room pretty much the whole time I was recovering. I do remember coming out of unconsciousness at one point and seeing him sitting there. He was very apologetic. He even cried. He stayed there until I got released. 
I guess it was pretty crazy. I started wrestling again on a few shows for ECW in a very short time after that, with only maybe a few weeks of healing. This was certainly against the doctor's orders, but since when did I really care about what doctors had to say? I had a bunch of good-paying matches that were coming up in Japan, and I needed to do those, so I left my last FMW tour with my head wrapped up in foam and headed to Japan. I actually wrestled my first match back in a neck brace. In FMW, they didn't seem to care about the neck brace. They thought it made me look tough. However, once I jumped over to New Japan Pro Wrestling, I saw a different interpretation of what my neck brace was. I remember that referee told me, we don't want you to wear those things in here because it looks like you're hurt. But I am hurt, I replied. I ended up working in New Japan without the neck brace, even though it was painful and it was crazy. I remember during a match, I would get the adrenaline rush and I wouldn't feel it so badly. But at night, I'd have to prop up my pillows and I never really could get comfortable. After one night of tossing and turning with practically no sleep, I realized that I needed to handle this one differently. That's when I started finally thinking about doing something I never did. I went to look for medication. I took the pills the doctor had given me. I got a little sleep, but I didn't really notice all that much of a difference as far as pain. I wrestled a little safer, but basically I probably was just breaking my neck over and over again in every single match. Any healing, any progress I had made was just undone every time I stepped back into the ring. My condition lasted a good part of the year. My neck was in constant pain. Back in the States, it was Benoit who gave me my first real few pills that were outside of a prescription. I took them, and again, nothing much happened. A little bit of daily pain went, and then it left, and it made it a little easier. And then the more, I noticed it was noticeably easier to work. And there was no sort of high or buzz I was getting from any of this either. It just eased the aches and pains, and it took off the edge. Benoit asked me, how were they working? I told him, good. He got me some more. When I got to working with Benoit again, I never gave him a receipt for that broken neck. He tried to help me. Yes, I would treat him like an asshole in the locker room. Yes, I was not always very nice to him. However, I would never intentionally blindside someone during a match physically. That wasn't my style, and though he did try to help me, I took it all into consideration. I took almost zero time off from ECW after working with a neck brace for some time and wrestling with a broken neck. Let's remember that. I figure, at this point, I'm unstoppable. If a broken neck couldn't stop me from in the ring, why should anything else? Then, right after my neck broke, my jaw broke. Wow. When this life-changing injury occurred, I think I was in Boston. It was me and RVD versus Tommy Dreamer in one of the best hands in the business, the Sandman. After some always impressive wrestling from the Sandman that could have put great ring technicians like Muda or Ricky Steamboat to shame, I knew I had to get the crowd into it. This was especially because I was pretty sure the Sandman was at least one cocktail away from being unconscious. We, of course, had been working a pretty weapons-heavy match, the ring looked like Fred Sanford's junkyard. There was a rubber tire, a Nintendo console, a bread box, a lamp, a snowshoe, and of course, a broken table. After the match, we could have flipped over the table and then put it back together again, but all we did was shit all over it. It was pretty funny. We could have sold that stuff at a garage sale. 
For a hardcore match, I suppose it was all right. ECW fans were pretty bloodthirsty fans, and they liked anything that looked painful to any of us. On the flip side of things, however, for a wrestling fan who liked actual wrestling, this match quickly became the shits. After hitting Sandman with everything but the kitchen sink, and then actually I did hit him with the sink, he finally fell hard, so he went down, face first on the mat, very much how he looked in the locker room on the floor as a result of countless beverages at any given moment. Being the hero that I am, I got my get on my feet and I decided to try to save the day. I climbed to the first rope to do one of my trademark triple jump moonsaults. One, two, three, I nailed it. However, that wasn't the only thing I nailed. As I came down out of the sky, ready to land on my opponent, the leg of the broken lamp came up fast. Before I hit the mat, it hit me squarely underneath my chin. I never saw it coming. Smash. I actually saw the leg for a split second before I hit it, and there was only three or four inches away from my face. It was just a blur at that point, just like a spike coming at me. The lower corner of my eye, I think my brain registered it as a threat. I couldn't tell. It targeted me. It would have hit me in the eye, but somehow it missed me. Oh, that fucking moonsault. I had just enough time to jerk my face away, just long enough, so I didn't skewer my cornea. Both rows of my teeth slammed together hard. I had dragged an enormous hole into my lower lip on the inside. My gosh, this thing basically took me out, and it was pretty bad. The pain was horrible. It was almost like getting shot all over again. I've broken about 30 to 40 bones in my life. An x-ray of my skeleton would probably look like a fucking human jigsaw puzzle at this point. I've broken my neck. I've broken my arm. I've broken both wrists. I've broken both of my hands. I've broken, I think, all my fingers. And I think at some point or another, at least three or four of my toes. I broke my ankle. I broke my foot. I broke my nose. And I think I've broken both of my balls and cock at least once. But somehow... I avoided my jaw for the longest time. However, when I did, it was the most painful, bone-breaking shit I'd ever endured. I was on the mat with a mouthful of dark blood. When I came to, I felt like somebody was standing on my face, smashing it down with their boot. I tried to swallow. Something wasn't quite right. I knew it was definitely more than just a flesh wound this time. I went to bite down and realized that my teeth, they didn't line up. It was like a shower door right off the track. I moved my tongue around in my mouth to take inventory. One row of my back molars was facing inward toward my lower gums. The pain was excruciating. If you'd ever experienced this, there is no words to explain the pain. It was instantly incomprehensible. The only thing I could think of was if someone took a hammer to the side of a vase, and that's what it felt like, a hammer right to the face. When I got up, the ECW fans gave me a standing ovation. I saved that match from stinking up the place, and I created quite a moment for myself as well. Yes, I was a hero, but not for wrestling. I unwillingly saved the match by appealing to the bloodthirsty bastards for sacrificing my ability to chew. After I got up, I walked back through the curtain. I was holding my jaw in place. Both every step, I felt it move. It was like marbles. There were little pieces of bone and jagged pieces moving all around. I almost passed out. It was broken in so many different places, and so many pieces were everywhere. It hurt so much that that weird self-preservation numbness kicked in, and then it 
didn't hurt anymore. I was not a stranger to numbness, don't get me wrong. I mean, numbness was a good friend of mine in the past. I grabbed a handful of ice out of the beer cooler and took a blood shower. Once the swelling finally went down, I spat out as much blood as I possibly could without needing a transfusion, and then I peered into the mirror. I turned my lower lip inside out and saw the jagged line where my teeth went through the puffy flesh. Rob came by, just in time to see me sputtering that gash in my mouth. Ugh, gnarly, he said. But you're still here. I figured you would have left by now. I took some toilet paper, and I went ahead and put it across my head, all the way from ear to ear. RVD watched me in awe, and he shook his head as he proceeded to tape my jaw closed. After some frustration, he came over and helped me out as well. Leave enough room so I can get a straw in here for my protein drinks, I said. Ah, you're the whole effing nurse. At that point, RVD knew what the deal was. We had been up and down the road so often together, he'd seen it all with me. Nothing bothered him anymore when it came to me. He made good and sure that I kept my hair out of the tape. My hair, well, that was part of my money. Good thinking with the toilet paper, Rob said, wrapping a layer around my chin. Nice forethought. In a voice that sounded like Rocky after a championship fight, I asked a medic how I, what I should do or how long should I wait before I wrestle again. I think the bare minimum on a jaw injury is like six weeks. At that point, your bones are probably healed enough where you could withstand getting hit again, at least a little, he said. Well, how do you feel? He asked me. Heyman also walked over and wanted to know how I felt. He made his way to the doctor, obviously wondering how long one of his key players was going to be out with an injury. I'll be back tomorrow. You're a sick fuck, he said, smiling. But it sounds good to me. That was Polly. I probably severed a nerve in my jaw, so my whole chin and all my teeth are always slightly numb even to today. I really don't have too much feeling in there anymore, which sucked also, but it's kind of also a good thing. It allowed me to not feel as much pain throughout the healing process and the next time this happened. So a few months later, after most of it had finally healed on its own, I came down hard on a guardrail in a match. After the match, I knew something quite wasn't right. I couldn't bite down at all very well. Even closing my mouth just for a sip of water bothered me, and I had to do something. So I went against all my normal rules about health and doctors. I went to the hospital. I had to get professionally fixed. When I got there, the oral surgeon knew right away that it was broken again, but he insisted on taking yet another x-ray. You know, this is exactly why I never go to the hospital, I said. He explained to me that he was going to reset the jaw, and he had to see how things were going to go. I agreed. When the x-rays came back, he put the pictures up on that light box frame that you know it's built into the wall. You could really see that the jaw was dislocated, but you could also see a bunch of black stuff all around the upper level of my mouth. It looks like there's something in there still, he said. Did you remove any table parts when you were playing doctor the first time this thing broke? I don't think so, I said. It was the leg, not wood, right? Then he started prodding around the roof of my mouth with a stick and then some kind of metal poker thing. Then we finally figured out that there was something stuck in my mouth from that original match. The x-rays had actually detected small shards that were deeply embedded. Guess what? 
not only from the wrestling match, but there were things, there was shrapnel from the time I got shot in the face as a kid. With a needle and a thread, he stitched all the pieces of my jaw back together. After the oral surgeon did his thing, they grabbed all the little pieces, and then he wrote me a prescription, a prescription for Vicodin. Just like the other pills Benoit gave me when I broke my neck, the new pills didn't really seem a whole lot different. How many milligrams, one of the boys once asked me when I was back in ECW. Shit, I don't know, I said. I've never been asked about those regarding my pills. Do you get a buzz when you take them? No. Off pills, I asked, never hearing something like that before. Axel Rotten looked at the bottle and said they were actually pretty weak. He suggested I take two of them instead of one. Well, that night, my jaw was still a mess. I took Dr. Rotten's recommended advice, and I took a little bit more than I should have. The next day, the boys asked me in the locker room how my jaw was feeling again, and since two pills really didn't seem to do very much, I told them not very well. Why don't you try two and a half, Axel then said. That's the magic number. You wouldn't think, but a half a pill matters so much. However, I tried that particular dosage of pills. I never stopped taking them. I started taking two and a half every single time, and once they wore off, the pain was back. I just kept taking them again. Oh my gosh, it was fucking magical. I was instantly hooked. Now, you have to remember that out of a lot of the wrestlers out there, I had a very brutal style of wrestling. This meant that I would often end up working matches under crazy conditions. My right arm might be hurt. My leg muscle might be pulled. Might have broken fingers. My neck didn't feel quite right. And sometimes my knee would pop. You could take three or four of these symptoms at any point in time, and that was the norm for me to experience at any point in time for my matches. So Pills became my best friend and my greatest tag team partner. Yep, for every single match. Painkillers really didn't have an effect on my state of mind. It wasn't like taking something that would affect your ability to wrestle in the ring before a match, like a 12-pack, like the Sandman. Now, don't get me wrong, there was a number of occasions when I would have taken some somas early in the afternoon and perhaps might still be feeling the effects of that stuff come bell time. However, I would never intentionally, never intentionally take any crazy drugs before a match that could put my opponent into danger. Never. My manager, Fonzie, knew the deal as well. Whenever we were out of inventory, he would say, Hey, Sabu, Daddy, I guess we're working without a net tonight. That was code for. There's no more painkillers left, and he couldn't find any more. That would always be a sad day for us. I was very sad. I didn't have my little tag team partners with me. It eventually became my opinion that matches without nets, gosh, they sucked. I began to understand why the wrestlers in Japan would always fill their mouths and say, I'm taking a tiger bomb in this match tonight, so I have to fake, take a few of these. A lot of people don't know this, but I would always get really nervous before a big match. In fact, I would get really nervous before even small matches. Roles had reversed a little bit by this time. Remember, as I was mentioning early before, in my mind, I didn't know that I could do wrong. When I mentioned I wanted to pick Adrian Adonis's mind on that early Canadian tour that never happened, well, quite often, green guys wanted to meet their matches and go over things and get some advice. Although I never tried, my nerves made for very little small talk with me. I'd still sit and watch and I'd focus on matches during the show, just long enough to watch how matches worked. 
I could almost never sit down before my matches either. I was always pacing back and forth and pretty much bouncing off the walls. Anxiety would make me turn around. I was always anxious to be in the ring. My brain was always throwing off all these possibilities around. What about this? What about that? Man, I wasn't tough enough for anything. I couldn't even just chill out before bell time. I'm not going to lie. There were a few times where I had to tell a guy that I saw this in a match, and it was really good, and I actually hadn't seen it because I had been running around the locker room all day just trying to kill my nerves. Now, take the nervousness, for example. Add pills to the mix and then some acrobatic flips during the match. You're going to have an upset stomach from time to time. This recipe also led to the occasional pre-match or post-match puke match, which did happen on more than one occasion. The ECW schedule typically ran in the ECW arena in Philly three weeks on Saturday nights for TV tapings and or what we called home video. Every show had a title, like when I wrestled RBD in July of 96, it was called A Matter of Respect. Then three weeks later, the show was called The Doctor's In, when Steve Williams made his ECW appearance. And if we were on tour, those shows revolved around the arena dates. Drug abuse stories in the ECW locker room are very real. After many of the shows on the road, we'd go out and we'd get something to eat, maybe drink some alcohol. There were never really any crazy Hollywood-like parties with all the boys meeting somewhere after a show. Not in some big, fancy hotel room or anything. Most of the shows, they just happened and we went back to our hotel room. However, the action didn't stop at the arena. There was quite a lot of action after the event. And you often got with your individual clicks. Parties went on in a lot of the guys' rooms. You see, most of the guys had their own specialty demons. Usually one guy would be into really one drug, while another guy would stick to another drug. Usually the pill poppers would hang out with other pill poppers, and the potheads would hang out with other potheads, and so forth. As for me, I celebrated diversity at these parties. I liked a little bit of everything. I didn't just pop a couple of pills. I popped in and out of all the rooms. After a show, I remember getting off the elevator and looking down the hallway. All the boys were there with their hotel doors open just a crack. It was open enough to invite each other to stop in to see what was going on before we started sharing. On this fine evening, I ducked my head into the first door. There, I saw some pretty tame wrestlers, green guys, sitting around smoking cigarettes. They offered me a smoke, maybe a cigar. I hung out with them for a second, shook their hands, and I rushed out of there. Rookies. Hearing some of the noise from a few doors down, I made my way towards there. There was some laughter. Hello, I said, peeking in. I saw a few heads look up. Terry Funk was in there. He was eating pizza. What's up, Sabu? The hardcore legend said. Come on in, have a drink, he said. I looked around the room. Cactus Jack was in there trying to figure out how to preserve some slices for, for the road trip in a greasy paper bag. A few of the other old-timers, like Tracy Smothers, were digging through a cooler looking for the last beer. I went in for a bit, and I enjoyed a few. They were talking about the good old days, and they were pretty cool to hang out with. After maybe 15 minutes or so of reminiscing with them, I, they ran out of drinks. I wanted something harder than Budweiser. Anyhow, I was ready to go from their room. Well, no more beer here? I think I gotta turn in. But I lied. They laughed. I shook their hands, and I walked out. Journeying down to the next room for my next quest was for liquor. Wanted. It was preferably whiskey or maybe some vodka from Sunny, something like that. 
The next door down was Rob Van Dam's place. I think the room was actually number 420. But he didn't have anything to drink. But he did have some good herbal tea. Without the tea, if you know what I'm saying. After smoking some intense wonder joints with the whole effing show and laughing up a storm, I got the munchies. And it made me even more thirsty. I think I rudely wandered out of his door saying goodbye, thinking about going to Terry Funk's room to see if I could pull out one more slice of pizza or somehow get a hold of Cactus's grubby bag. Before doing so, I got distracted. My ADD kicked in, and I crossed the hall to one of the Japanese guy's rooms. Sabu, look, he said, trying to be a good host. It didn't take long before my man was opening something that looked like a plastic bag full of Skittles. There, under the rainbow, I found a bunch of cool pills from the land of the rising sun. I didn't know really what all of them were, but after taking a good handful, I had to shit. After dropping some timber off, I realized I was super dehydrated. I had a massive case of cotton mouth. I started thinking about that vodka again to wash all of this down. So, I bowed and headed out. A couple of doors down, I found Molly, and I don't mean Molly Holly. I shook some hands. I took a hit and then said my goodbyes. Thanks, but I gotta go now, man. I'm fucking thirsty, I told him. A couple after that, I was still craving something to drink. I found myself in the Coke room, but as you can imagine, that didn't really quench my thirst either. It was the kind of Coke that only came in powder form. As you could probably guess, by this point, I was fucked up. Up. They had everything you could ever imagine in this hallway. It was a buffet of narcotics. Having one particular monkey on my back for me probably would have been the best, but it wasn't just one. It was several. I tried pretty much all of it, and in less than an hour of doing the rounds, I think I blacked out. When I woke up, I found myself in yet another room. It was the Sandman's. Just like his name, he always had stuff that he would give you that would knock you right out and put you to sleep. For good. Speaking of the Sandman, there's an urban legend out there about the withholding somas from Sonny unless I got a blowjob. It was something like I was holding them in my left hand and I couldn't open it until she finished the act on me. Then immediately after the act, I would open my hand and relinquish a bunch of these sweet pills. Well, it's a great story. It's just that, a story. And the Sandman made the whole thing up. Boy, he's stupid. If this story ever did happen, it wasn't with me or I wasn't the one that Tammy was on the other end of, sucking the dick. Maybe it was just someone who looked like me, like maybe Abdullah the Butcher or Kamala. I don't know. My theory is, is that doing after doing a bunch of coke, Sandman said that bullshit and some dirt right cheater ran with it trying to think that it was funny. Then he printed it everywhere and everyone thought I was now the biggest scumbag. The reason I can't really blame Sandman's fiction writing on him was, well, the coke. I did the coke with him just before that interview. But yeah, either way, the Sunny story, it's all bullshit. I have another story about pills getting into some trouble. Let's fast forward to 2012 for a minute. After ECW had a long since been out of business, a promotion that eventually created or tried to create a new void in wrestling. It was called Extreme Championship Wrestling, but it was now called Extreme Rising. I came in one night before a show. I was achy, and I was beat up from a couple of rough dates. Someone gave me a bunch of muscle relaxers. I took them, 
and they worked a little, but not enough. Soon after that, another one of the boys said they had some more pills, and they were willing to share them, but they were hesitant. You have an autograph signing first thing at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, they said. Ah, you should be focused on doing that. I don't know if you should be taking these pills, because an early autograph session, I mean, you really need to go to these things. Don't worry about me, I replied. I put my hands out. That wasn't part of our deal. This is the first time I'm hearing about it. I'm not going to go to that appearance. It doesn't even matter to me. The good brother was cool, and he shared his goods. I took the pills and disappeared into my room. My little tiny tag team partners did me some good that night. Just before I fell asleep, I popped a mess of those somas before I was totally down and out for the count. Throughout the purple haze, I remembered what they said about an autograph signing. Shit, they're going to try to wake me up in the morning for that damn appearance. Well, I can tell you something, that ain't happening. After that, I decided to let the drugs help me be creative. It worked for Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles, so why not me? I channeled the innovative demons. I got off the bed and rearranged the furniture, like Paige Davis in an episode of Trading Spaces. First, I slid the dresser under the door, and then I flipped it up on one side. Then I grabbed everything that wasn't bolted in place, and I barricaded my door like motherfucking the Alamo. When I was done, it looked like somebody had turned the room 90 degrees with a giant snow globe, and all the shit slid to one side. The next morning, just as I had expected, some lame bastard was calling my hotel room, like at 7 o'clock in the morning, with a wake-up call reminding me about some autograph signing. Fuck, I said. Groggy as hell, I reached over and returned the morning pleasantries with my own. Bang! I slammed the receiver down hard. Einstein either couldn't figure out what that meant, or he just didn't take a hint. The phone rang again. He called me back. So I did it again. I slammed the receiver. I lingered on the edge of the bed, waiting for a third ring to happen, but there was nothing. I leaned back on my pillow, and I was drifting. I was almost asleep when I finally heard that bullshit ring a third time. What in the fuck, I grunted. On the third ring, I realized whoever was calling me, well, they weren't really a rocket scientist, so I jumped out of bed and I picked the phone. Now, when I say picked up the phone... That part is true, but I did not pick it up to talk. I picked it up with my hands while it was still ringing. I ripped the cord out of the wall, and I threw it across the room toward the pile of shit I had used to block the doorway. I knew it wouldn't be long before they'd be knocking on my door, trying to get me out, trying to drive me somewhere to sign some stupid shit at 8 in the morning. I didn't agree to do that, and you know what? It wasn't happening. So... Because I didn't have earplugs, I could drown out the noise and the sounds of the promoters. I decided to tag out and rely on my little tag team partners again. I just took some more somas and some more sleeping pills, and soon I was back asleep. Just as I had predicted, the promoter came to try to wake me up. It just wasn't happening. I, well, I didn't really hear anything. You know why? I was in super la-la land. Though I was unconscious during their efforts, they tried to knock on the door, but I had barricaded it. The promoter's next course of action was to try to see if they can get into my room through the room that was next to me. Raven was in that room next to me, and he and I had adjoining doors. I know they had asked him if he knew what was going on, and he told them I was fine because he could hear me snoring. Raven knew the deal. He had had his share of ridiculous demons from promoters as well. 
He also had so many demands from them. He had my back, but that didn't matter. I guess the promoter just didn't care and decided to try to break in and find me. When I didn't answer the wake-up calls, he came a-knocking. I think I remembered hearing the knocking, and it pissed me off so much to wake me up. I just took a few more pills, and then they knocked me out even more. Eventually, these rocket scientists got the cops involved and told them they thought something was wrong, and evidently I was dying. I was absolutely fine. But the promoters were just as mad as hell that I wasn't going to make their autograph signing. They were also concerned I wouldn't be up in time for the wrestling show that night. I definitely would have been fine by the wrestling show. And that is why they booked me. Again, I would never agree to do something and then not do it, such as an autograph signing. When I woke up in the hospital room, unfortunately for me, I didn't have any identification on me. So it was very easy for me to leave the hospital. When I came back to the hotel room, I got there. I remember I had $1,000 in cash in my wallet. A lot of the guys said that they knew the money was there, and they all started blaming each other who might have taken the cash. In the end, I was out of luck. A lot of my stuff was gone, along with the money, even my shoes. After the incident, everyone was worried about me. My family was really concerned, and I finally decided to go to rehab, but only for them. A lot of people will say how rehab was the best thing that ever happened to them, but for me, rehab was just boring. Everybody would get up in the morning and drink coffee. Wait, caffeine is a drug, right? It was like going to jail, but a nice, fancy kind of jail with brown roast and creamer. After everyone filled their mugs, they would go into this big room and all the people would tell their war stories. On the very first day, I remember we all got together and we pushed our seats into a big circle so we could look at each other. Hello, I guess I'll start, one of the old grizzled guys said. I'm Joe. Hello, Joe, everyone said back. My name is Joe and I'm an alcoholic. Then Joe went into this big diatribe. It was a long, involved story about he started small, and then his addiction took over until he hit rock bottom. He talked about taking a shit of pills, and then all of a sudden, there was issues with him pooping. And then he was popping more pills in his mouth, and then again, and there was this nasty-ass thing about pooping. And after Joe was finally done, some guy named Tom would try to outdo him with his story. When that was done, there was some guy named John, and then there was a guy named Mike, and listen, it kept going on. If I were a stand-up comedian or a writer or something, maybe I could have used this for some good material. But let me tell you this. It got old real quick. When it was finally my turn to get up and cut a promo, I didn't do anything extra special. I'm in rehab, and I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to play their games. So on the very first day of Honor Story Promos, you've got to honor your promo. You have to tell your story. When all the heads turned my way, I nodded and said, My name is Terry, and I pass. Then I quickly sat back in my chair. The room went quiet. It wasn't the first time that someone didn't want to cooperate, and they weren't really offended by it. I just think that the word choice left them a little unsettled. Honestly, I liked the vibe I set, so that became my gimmick. Whenever it came to my turn in the big circle jerk, I would just say the same thing. My name is Terry. Pass. A few weeks into it, it may have changed some other things. My name is Terry, and yeah, 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 you guessed it, I passed. I really couldn't give a shit at that point. 
I must have ended up being a bad influence on all the other people who were used to being under the influence. At the end of 30 days, all the drunk people ran out there, and then I guess I was just there. Some guys said that they were used to snorting coke out of a hooker's asshole. That was one of their stories. In the very final days of rehab, everybody would get their mugs of coffee, sit in the big circle jerk, and then pretty much say the same thing. I guess I trained him well. Hello, my name is Joe. Pass. Hello, my name is Mike. Yeah, I pass too. Fucking gimmick infringement. This beautiful passage is being brought to you by from Joel. Not even the slick shit your mom used to do with me in Philly when she was being a filthy-ass $2 whore could challenge Sabu's in-ringing sanity when it came to hardcore. Sure, she was filled like a donut and stuffed crazy with my cream, but Sabu was blood-soaked bonkers with superglue, an undeniably extreme. Well, well, well. Now, I remember hanging with Sabu one time, and it was late in the night. Everybody was there after the show. All the ECW boys were closing down the night by cracking open a few cold ones. We were all chilling. Everybody was just being themselves. It's all a blur now on what town we were actually in. I wonder why. But anyhow, we were in a hotel room, somehow probably in the middle of nowhere. I do remember it was one of those motel-style ground floor outdoor things where everyone's door was just slightly cracked open. Sabu was in the room with us for sure. In fact, I think I might have actually been in his room. We all were. Now, I really liked hanging with Sabu whenever I could. He was a super cool dude. He was one of the people that I admired when I worked in ECW. On this particular night, like any other night, I tried to show my friendship the way I always would do, by making people laugh their asses off and losing their minds. At this point in time, cell phones were just becoming mainstream, but the technology, well, it kind of sucked. They were still buggy. It was becoming a regular occurrence to be talking with someone on your phone and then being told, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I have a bad cell site. Yeah, that thing became a thing. So when there was a dozen or more of us all sitting around having fun, and I'm playfully messing around Sabu by talking to him all choppy, mimicking the bad cell phone reception, you know I was making my voice cut in and out as if we were speaking on a real bad connection. Sabu had a few drinks, and honestly, he was a little messed up. The look on his face was priceless. He was legitimately trying to figure out if what he was hearing or not hearing was real. Sabu just couldn't understand why some of the words came out of my mouth and why some things made him all the way to his eardrums. I think he was legit freaked out at some point in time when he saw that my lips kept moving, but some of the time, no voice came out. I kind of messed with him. He started hitting the side of his head like swimmers do to get the water out. He continued to have people ask him questions. Oh my goodness. I started making a gobble-gobble chicken sound. That did it. The chicken thing really got him paranoid. He jumped out of bed and started looking around. He looked under the beds. He looked in the closet. He looked in the bathroom. He told everyone in the place to be careful. Seriously, guys, I think there's a bird in here or something. Now, he was so fucked up, he really believed that there was a chicken in the room. Might have escaped out the back door. Or was he just working all of us? Who knows? It was awesome either way. Watch out. There's a fucking turkey in the room. Joel Gertner. 
That's going to end it for Chapter 8 of the Sabu book. I hope you guys enjoyed it. There's so many things that we learned about this. You know, we learned about Sabu's personal habits when it came to medication. We learned about uh, the way Sabu tried to get along with everybody. We learned about how it was really like in the ECW locker room when it came to drug use. He didn't really give names out, but there was a Coke room, there was a pot room, there was a beer room. Uh, the Japanese wrestlers, they had their own room as well. There's a lot of things going on. But that is going to do it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please, please, please keep enjoying what we are doing. Uh, it's a lot of fun. When we come back the next time, it'll be Chapter 9, New Japan Jump. That should be interesting. With that being said, this has been Overbooked, and I'm Mike Freeland.